This morning's scripture reading is from Proverbs chapter 3. If you're following along in our Blue Pew Bibles, you'll find that passage on page 528. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight, or he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son... Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Let's pray once more. Father, we pray for the word of God as it was just read and now as it is to be preached. We pray that your spirit will accompany your truth, that, it, that, he, that he will work in our hearts, helping us to understand your truth and giving us the affections and the will to obey your truth. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been excited about this sermon series that we have started in the book of Proverbs. I kick-started it a few weeks ago, and there we explained that Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a book filled with words of insight. You know, it's not like those those other ancient books of wise sayings that often read more like riddles. You know, a lot of ancient Proverbs, they, they sound really smart, but in the end when you read them, you have really no idea what they're talking about. But if you spend time in Proverbs, and I hope you are doing that as we go through this series, I think you're going to notice that Proverbs make a lot of practical sense. It's not filled with a bunch of abstract theories and philosophies. No, Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom. It is wisdom for life. Now, I made a point in my first message to distinguish wisdom from knowledge or intellect. Wisdom, we said, is not the mere acquisition of information. That's what it means to be knowledgeable about a subject, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're wise in it. And so the example that we gave was of a 600-pound man who might be knowledgeable in the principles of dieting. He could write a best-selling book on the subject. He can give a lecture, a TED Talk on dieting, but he would not, and he would be considered knowledgeable in that subject, but he wouldn't be called wise in it. Because wisdom has to do with more than the mere acquisition of information. It includes knowing what to do with that information and how to apply it to your own life. So ask yourself, why is Solomon considered to be the wisest king? When we preached on 1 Kings 3, we saw Solomon described as as the wisest king on earth. Why is that? Is it because over the course of his life he wrote 3,000 proverbs and wrote over 1,000 songs? Is it because he was so smart and he could lecture brilliantly on, on a variety of different subjects? Now, all of that is true. It's all said there in the Bible, but that's not why Solomon was considered so wise. He's considered so wise because of what he could do with that big brain of his. He he knew how to use all of that knowledge he stored up and to use it for everyday life, to help him make decisions and judgments that are good and godly. He's considered wise, not because he knows a thing or two about maternal instincts, but because he knew how to take that information and how to put it to good use in a challenging case where two mothers were claiming the same child to be their own. Now, that's wisdom. Is it really surprising for us to hear that wisdom is different from just being knowledgeable, just being smart? I think all of us know 
all of us know really intelligent people. I'm talking about like genius-level smart people, but at the same time, these same people make some really unwise decisions in life. They're super smart, but they're not wise. They still have to learn how to put all of that knowledge they have stored up into good use. What they need is wisdom, wisdom for life. And let's just be honest, there's a good chance that I was describing you. I'm describing myself, especially when it comes to the difference between being just knowledgeable in the things of God and actually being wise in it. I think for many of us, we've been in the church long enough so that we know a whole lot of things about the Bible. We can ace a quiz on the Bible, but are we wise in the things of Scripture? We might be biblically smart, but it's not the same thing as being biblically wise. So when you're faced with a clear-cut black and white decision between either a path of sin or a path of obedience, in a situation like that, yeah, all you really need is to be biblically smart. You just need to know what the Bible has to say about that particular situation, that particular issue, which path leads to sin, avoid it. Which path leads to obedience? Take it. You don't need wisdom to handle a situation like that. You just need to be smart enough to know what the Bible says about it. But it's too bad that life, for most of life, it's not like that. For most of life, we don't face such easy, clear-cut decisions. Most of the decisions, most of the circumstances that you're going to face in life are not that black and white. You can't just turn to a verse to tell you what to do or which path to take. Often you are dealing with decisions not between right and wrong, but between good, better, and best. And sometimes all of the options in front of you are problematic to some degree, and you're just going to have to make do and to choose the least bad path in front of you. That's when being biblically smart is not going to cut it. Biblically smart is not going to be enough. That's when you need to be biblically wise. That's when you need practical wisdom for life. And that, my friends, is what Proverbs is all about. Now, this morning, what I want to do is to raise the question of how do we get wisdom? If wisdom is something all of us need, then how do we grow in wisdom? How do we become biblically wiser people? Now, when we looked at 1 Kings 3, it seemed like Solomon, all he had to do was just trust in God and that God would just give it to him. He he prayed for it, and the next thing you know, he's the wisest king on the earth. And so it's easy to assume that's how you do it. That's how you get wisdom. Apparently, what we need to do is we need to stop overthinking everything. We just need to trust in the Lord. Stop trusting in your own understanding. Just acknowledge him as the source of that wisdom you need and ask for it, and he will make your path straight. That is, in other words, he will just tell you which path to take. Now, you can just hear in there echoes of Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. That's probably the most popular verses here in the book of Proverbs. For many of you, it's probably your favorite memory verse. But my concern is that 1 Kings 3 and Proverbs 3 have been misused 
to promote a view of gaining wisdom that is far too passive and far too mystical. It's as if growing in wisdom means not thinking too hard with my mind and just trusting more with my heart, as in simply just waiting on God to mystically bypass my mind and my understanding and just send me the answer that I need for this or that situation. I'm going to challenge that interpretation, challenge that thinking this morning. Instead, I'm going to argue that wisdom is a learned skill. It's a learned skill for navigating the uncertainties of life. It's not a mystically downloaded set of instructions for what to do in each and every situation. It's a learned skill for navigating the uncertainties of life. Now, please hear me out. I do believe that wisdom is a gift from God, that God is the ultimate source of wisdom. So if you want to be biblically wise, yes, you are going to need to pray for it. So whatever you hear me say this morning, please don't come away with the impression that praying for wisdom and trusting God to give you wisdom is somehow overly pious and unnecessary. No, all I am saying is that praying and trusting God for wisdom is not meant to encourage an overly pious, passive attitude where you just sit back and wait for God to zap you with wisdom. If that's all you need to do, if that's how you gain wisdom, then really there's no need for Solomon to have written the book of Proverbs. He could have just given us a prayer that we can, we can chant over and over again as we wait for God to just mystically download wisdom into our hearts. But no, instead he gave us a whole book filled with lessons that we need to learn We need to use our minds as we read this book. That's the first point that I want to get across this morning. Wisdom is not granted mystically as we sit back passively. Wisdom is a learned skill, learned through study and through memorizing God's Word. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Look at that with me. Verse 5 says, trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. A very familiar verse for us. So here in verse 5, the idea of trusting in the Lord is set in contrast with leaning on your own understanding. Now that word there for leaning on means to fully rely on for support. That's the same word that Naaman used to describe his master, the old king of Syria, leaning on his arm as he ushered the king into the temple. So he's trusting Naaman to fully support his weight, to keep him from falling. So here, to lean on your own understanding means that you are fully relying on your own understanding, that means your own innate, innate, inborn, fallen wisdom to give and to guide you in life. That's, of course, set in contrast to trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. So you're given two options here. There's just two ways of life being presented. You can live your life relying fully on God, leaning on Him with all of your weight, or you can try to lean on yourself. And it's very obvious which is the wise and which is the foolish 
option, this picture with me, a drunk fool trying to, to support his own weight by, by leaning on himself. Clearly, that's not going to work. So the idea of trusting in the Lord's understanding as opposed to trusting and leaning on your own is pretty clear. There's no real confusion there to, to interpret and to understand that. But the problem is, the problem is we commonly interpret that to mean that we're just thinking too much. We're using our, our, our brains and our minds too much. We're, we're just too focused on the mind. What we need to do is just to lead with the heart, go with the heart, trust in the Lord with all your heart, seems to mean just have these deep feelings of confidence that God is just going to take care of you and just tell you what to do whenever you face uncertainty. Don't think so hard. Just trust. But that way of reading verse 5 downplays the importance of learning and applying your mind. I think it breeds an unhealthy passivity where we just expect God to zap us with wisdom. I think a lot of the confusion is due to the way that modern readers like us tend to associate the human heart with feelings and the mind with thinking. And so when it says the trust in the Lord with all your heart, we tend to read that as a focus more on our feelings than on our thinking. But that's not how an ancient reader would have read this verse. Nowadays, yes, we do consider the heart to be the seat of our emotions and feelings. When you feel, you feel in the heart. When you think, you think in the head. We treat those as separately. But in ancient times, the heart, whenever you see the word the heart, mentioned in Scripture, it's viewed as really the control center of the entire person, your entire being. So your heart is where you do your thinking and your feeling and your deciding. Your thinking, feeling, and deciding all conducted in the heart. So to trust the Lord with all of your heart means to trust Him with not just your emotions, but with your thoughts and your volition. So we shouldn't read this verse as somehow downplaying the importance of critical thinking and learning as a means to grow in wisdom. And just think about the overall context of Proverbs. The overall context supports this, where wisdom is presented as something you have to seek after with your mind. Growing in wisdom is never presented as this passive activity that you just sit back and wait for. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 4 tells us to seek wisdom like silver, to search for it like hidden treasure. The idea there is that growing in wisdom is going to be a search. It's going to take some effort. Proverbs 6, 21 says to bind your father's commandments on your hearts always, to, to tie them around your neck. Proverbs 7, 3 says the same thing, to bind the words on your fingers, to write them on the tablet of your heart. Those Proverbs there are stressing the importance of memorizing, the discipline of memorization, to bind these teachings on your heart, to write them on the tablet of your heart. That means to memorize them, to make an effort to not forget them. And just think about the context of our chapter of Proverbs 3. Just look with me at verses 1 to 4. 
Look there, and you'll see that they stress the same point for us to study God's Word, to memorize God's Word, and to make every effort not to forget it. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Look at verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Here we go. Bind them, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Friends, if you hope to grow in wisdom, then don't just sit back and wait for God to zap you with it. You need to apply your mind to study the teachings and the commandments of God's Word. You need to hide them in your heart, bind them and write them on your heart through memory, through memorization. When God gives you wisdom, Friends, he's not going to bypass your mind. He's going to start with your mind. Because when your mind is enlightened to grasp the truth of God, then your heart, your, 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 your your affections are stirred up to love the truth of God, and then your will is activated to obey the truth of God. That's the way it works. So let me ask you a question. And and, and the question is not, do you need to grow in wisdom? I know you do. I do as well. The question is, what are you doing to grow in wisdom? Are you regularly in the Word of God? Are you taking active steps to study it? Are are you studying it with other people, joining a community group or joining a a citywide Bible study of of, of studying God's Word and also memorizing the Word? Consider with me, for the the month of February, we're about to start a new month. it's, It's a shorter month, so just choose February. Use February as a month where you're going to pick a well-known chapter of Scripture, like you know, Ephesians 1, uh, Romans 8, Psalm 19, Psalm 139. These are all very popular chapters. And commit yourself during that month to read that chapter every single day and committing by the end of the month the entire chapter to memory. Consider doing that as a personal discipline or doing that together with others. That's how you grow in wisdom. Not because you expect that a verse in one of those chapters is just so happen going to be instructing you on what to do in this or that situation. No, that's not how wisdom works. Wisdom works when your heart is so leaning on and trusting in God, when your thinking and your feeling and your deciding is so aligned with Scripture, when your mind is so saturated and renewed by the truth, that now you grow to know what is good and perfect and acceptable. You grow to know how to discern God's will. Now look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make, your, make straight your paths. The one who's going to grow in wisdom is going to acknowledge God in all your ways. Now, when you hear acknowledge him, don't think, oh, that, that just means to acknowledge God's existence. Okay, yeah, I, I already do that. 
No, 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 friends. It means more than just believing that God exists. To acknowledge him in all your ways means that there are no compartments in your life where God is off limits. It it means you acknowledge him wherever you are, wherever you go, whatever you're doing. It's like telling a man to acknowledge his wife while he's away on a business trip. You're not telling him just to simply acknowledge that she exists. He already knows that. What you mean is to acknowledge your relationship with your wife and how it affects all of your ways, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, especially when you're you're away on that business trip. When we acknowledge the Lord in all our ways, when we let our relationship with him affect and to shape all of our ways, then it says God will make our paths straight. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to make your life problem-free. That life, it doesn't mean that life is now going to be just smooth sailing. No, you might face bumps and obstacles on this path. But the point here is that God will help you to walk a morally straight path instead of a morally crooked one. He's going to help you to navigate a straight path through all those obstacles by giving you the wisdom to know what is the right thing to do. Now, this idea here that our lives are bound to have bumps and obstacles and that God is making a by, by God making a straight path for us doesn't mean that he's going to remove all of our problems. That's, that leads to the second point that I wanted to make this morning. The second point is that wisdom is not learned in a pain-free environment. Wisdom is learned through hardship and through receiving God's discipline. Look with me at verse 11. Commentators have noted that chapter 3 contains three sections that each start with Solomon directly addressing his son and telling him something not to do. So in verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching. Now in verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And later on in verse 21, my son, do not lose sight of these. So let's focus on this second section on verse 11. Let me read verse 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline Or be wary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the point here is so important to make because we so want it to not be true. We we, we don't want to hear that wisdom is a hard thing to come by. We want to think that it's going to be easy, that you just pray a prayer like Solomon and you just sit back and wait for wisdom just to fall on you. But what verses 11 and 12 are saying is what we've been saying all along, that wisdom is a learned skill. It's a learned skill for navigating the uncertainties of life. It's a skill for living a godly, morally straight life, lived with a healthy fear of the Lord, acknowledging him in all your ways. And the point here in particular is that this skill is sharpened and honed through hardship and difficulties. I mean, just think about parenting. Think about how you parent. If you want your kid to grow and to develop, to mature in wisdom, are you going to create a home environment that is discipline-free? 
where you just never confront them for their foolish behavior? Or are you going to be that kind of parent that intervenes every single time to remove any obstacle or any difficulty that your child might face? You do that, and yes, you'll have a child that, that is safely protected from the hardships of life, but you'll also have a child who is woefully ill-prepared to face life on her own. She'll be overly coddled and underdeveloped. She'll lack the practical wisdom to navigate the uncertainties of life. Or just think about your own experience. Just think about the, the, those seasons in your life when you grew the most spiritually, when, when you learned really big life lessons and you became wiser. Tell me, was it during a time in life when everything was going just as planned, everything was going smooth, everything was easy, um, or did it come during times in life when you were challenged? I, I, I doubt it was during the easy times. I bet if you were to look back, you would agree that you grew the most during times of hardship times of difficulty, not during times of ease and comfort. You became wiser because you were challenged, not because you were coddled. So I, I know when you hear verse 11 speak of the Lord's discipline and of his reproof, I know it's easy to chafe at these verses, to despise the thought that God would challenge us and confront us and purposely put us through hardship. But if you look in verse 12, it reminds us that all of, this, all of this is done out of love, out of a fatherly love that wants his children to grow and to mature in wisdom. And of course, this means that you first have to be one of his children. This is a fatherly love, and so to draw any comfort, any encouragement out of hardships that you face in life, you need to be in relationship with God where he is your Father, and friend, that is not our natural state. No one is born a child of God where God is Father. We are all born in sin. We are estranged from God. To be his child, you need to be born again. You need a second birth that comes only through faith in the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. But here, the point here is that once you have been born again, once God is your Father, then you can trust that He has a good purpose for the pain that He is putting you through. C.S. Lewis made the same point in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says to imagine yourself as a picture and God is the artist. And there are two types of pictures here. There's the quick, rough sketch, and then there is the meticulous masterpiece. Listen to what Lewis says. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, he will take endless trouble and would, doubtless, thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. That is, if somehow the, the picture were alive and able to think and to feel. 
He goes on to say, one can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then, we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Did you hear that? When you wish for God to discipline you less and give you less hardships, you're wishing for him to love you less. When God keeps challenging you and confronting you and putting you through suffering, it does not mean that God hates you or that he has it out for you. If he did, then he wouldn't even bother with you. The fact that he won't leave you alone, the fact that he keeps working on you, disciplining you, what that should tell you is that you are not a quick, rough sketch in the eyes of God. No, you are a masterpiece. Or more accurately, you are a part of a larger, grander masterpiece called the church, God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. So Christian, when you suffer, it does not signal that God loves you less. Instead, it shows that he loves you more, probably more than you can even imagine. He cherishes you as a masterpiece, as something valuable, something he purchased with the most cherished possession of his own, his beloved son. The author of Hebrews makes the same connection in Hebrews chapter 12. There he quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12. So if those verses sounded familiar, it's because you've, you've heard them and you've read them in Hebrews 12. And he reminds Christians in chapter 12, Christians who are going through hardship, that God is treating you as any good father would treat his sons. He is disciplining you out of love. And then he sets that exhortation to, to, to embrace and to accept discipline. He sets it in the context of, quote, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, when Jesus suffered in our place, the suffering he went through was a punishment for sins. Not his own, because he had no sins. It was our sins. And he did it once and for all. And now, because of what he endured on the cross, the suffering that we go through can be considered discipline for holiness, discipline to make us wiser children of God. Now, if you keep on reading in Hebrews 12, the author is just going to get really real with us. He says in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So he, he's not soft-pedaling God's discipline. He acknowledges, yes, it can be painful. It's not a pleasant experience. But then he goes on. He goes on to say, but later 
It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, friends, this relates to the third point I want to make this morning. That wisdom is not easy to come by, but it is the most rewarding of pursuits. It is the most rewarding of pursuits. So as we briefly fly over the remaining verses in chapter 3, I, I just want to stress the point that wisdom is not mystically granted as we sit back passively. It is, no, rather in, a gain by engaging our minds, by learning Scripture, memorizing Scripture, allowing Scripture to permeate our outlook on life. And it's not just going to happen in the school of studies. To grow in wisdom, we're going to have to learn it in the school of suffering, in the school of discipline. It's a hard pursuit, friends, but the payoff is worth it. Notice how there are plenty of, plenty of incentives for pursuing wisdom sprinkled throughout chapter 3. Just, just look with me at Proverbs 3 and follow along as I just point you to a few verses. Look in verse 2. There we're incentivized to grow in wisdom with the promise of long life and peace. And then in verse 4, we're promised favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Look in verse 8. There we're promised healing and refreshment. And if you look down with me in verse 13, the blessings become even more explicit. If you find wisdom, it says, if you get understanding, you're going to be blessed in verse 14 with something more profitable than silver and gold. And gold. And then in verse 15, with something more precious than jewels. And look in verse 16, we're told that wisdom will confer to you riches and honor and long life. And in verse 17, it'll lead you on pleasant and peaceful paths. And then in verse 18, getting wisdom is going to bless you. It'll bless you like the tree of life, it will give you life. And then skipped on down to verse 21. This is that third section marked by my son. Solomon says that if you keep sound wisdom, if you keep discretion, if you keep your eye on these things, you're going to have security in life. Look at verse 23. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Now, friends, these are huge incentives to grow in wisdom. These are really good reasons to pursue it. But be careful. Be careful not to read them as absolute promises. Proverbs aren't meant to be read as absolute principles or promises. I think that's the problem with a lot of prosperity gospel teaching. It misreads verses like these and treats them like ironclad absolute promises. Proverbs are more like general principles or general promises that are generally true. These verses are not ruling out any exception. They're just saying that life will generally go well for you the more you mature and become more biblically wise. I mean, just imagine with me, if you didn't know how to drive a car, or if you didn't know how to maintain a car, if, if you just sat back and you just assumed that all of that wisdom for driving and maintaining a car is somehow just going to magically or mystically come to you one day, then don't be surprised when your car doesn't fare very well. 
If you drive poorly on the road, you're going to have plenty of dents and dings in your car. And if you fail to change your oil, you fail to change and replace those belts, then you're going to damage your engine. You're going to shorten the lifespan of your vehicle. But if you wised up, and you took the time to learn how to drive properly, and if you learned how to properly service your vehicle, if you operated and maintained your car according to its design specifications, according to the instruction manual, then you can generally expect your car to be in good condition and to generally drive well over a long span of time. Now, that's obviously no absolute guarantee or promise. There could be an accident. Something could happen, but it's generally true. It's a general truism. I think that's what Proverbs 3 is trying to say. We are creatures made in the image of God. So he knows exactly how we are designed. He knows exactly how our lives are meant to be operated. He also knows how to maintain our lives and how to keep them in good condition. And God, thankfully, graciously, wrote down all of this for us in a book. A book that we can read, that we can study, that we can learn and memorize. And if we do that, if we study this book, we learn this book, we bind it and write it on our hearts, then we can generally expect our lives to stay in good condition and generally, dare I say, prosper over a long span of time. Of course, there's no absolute guarantee. And as we've already said, there will be bumps, there will be obstacles on the path, there will be pain, there will be hardship, but it is fair to say that as you grow more biblically wise, as you increase in insight and discernment, then life will generally go well for you. That's a general truth, and that's our incentive here in this text to pursue wisdom. So, Father, drive these points, drive this truth deep down in our minds, stir up our affections, and activate our will to obey you, to respond with faithfulness to your word. Help us to be wiser people. Grow us. Grow us through our minds, our hearts, our will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.